I still actually can't believe we're able to make this contact with Stephen Gleason. Stephen, this is fantastic. So letting folks know, you know, hurling. I know for this class, History 205, this is probably a very new term. You probably looked at the syllabus and said, hey, how come you had curling with an H? It Shouldn't it be curling with a C? No, we're talking about a completely different sport. And my first introduction to this sport was I was in Ireland, Dublin, Ireland, a few years ago, and I was walking by this stadium. And I was like, what is this stadium? It's a massive stadium. And I saw these pictures on the wall, and it kind of looked like lacrosse, but it wasn't lacrosse. So I get back home, you know, I turn on TV, internet, checking out this hurling. They had like goalposts, there's like on a, on a football field, American football field, and people had helmets and masks and they're hitting, but it kind of, I was like, this is awesome. And lo and behold, we know we're here, fast forward a few years, and I get this fantastic opportunity to meet and connect with Stephen Gleason. So Stephen, how are you doing? Hi, Christopher. Yeah, great to be involved and connected over the World Wide Web. I really appreciate the time they're coming here. So, Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about where are you? Where are you right now? And, and <laughs> you know, we're talking about Tipperary, but where is that? Where are you? Who are you? <laughs> well, I'm a sports commentator and the sports editor of Tip FM. And Tip FM is a radio station in the south of Ireland. And we're based in Tipperary. And Tipperary is the name of the county. And you may have heard of uh, an old song called It's a Long Way to Tipperary. And that is uh, a song really, I suppose, that is known worldwide. And that comes from World War One, when uh, the English had a base in, in Ireland and in Tipperary where they trained soldiers to go off to World War One. So I suppose Ireland, as you may know, has been occupied for many, many uh, centuries up until the this century, really, I suppose, uh, say the 20th century more so, uh, it was freed, I suppose, in uh, from 1916 to 1921, the place was at war, and uh, eventually Ireland got 26 counties free, six still belong to the UK, but uh, where I am in Tipperary is in the south of Ireland, so it's part of the Republic of Ireland, and in the Republic of Ireland, there's 26 counties. Tipperary is one of the counties. It's in the province of Munster, and Munster has uh, six counties. The best known place is probably Cork. That's the big centre, and Tipperary is just north of Cork. So Cork is down on the south coast of Ireland. Tipperary is just above it. It's a rural county full of mountains and rivers and uh, a lot of towns as well. And Tipperary is the heartbed, I suppose, of GAA and of sports in some ways, because if you trace the background of the GAA, you can trace it back to 1884 in a hotel in Turles called Hayes's Hotel. And the GAA stands for the Gaelic Athletic Association. So uh, so I'm based not too far from where the Gaelic Athletic Association was formed and this old ancient county of uh, Tipperary. And I'm in a town called Cashel in Tipperary, where there's a big ancient rock in the middle of it, and it's called the Rock of Cashel. So if you want to get uh, good bearings for where I am, Christopher, you can just look up the Rock of Cashel in County Tipperary. I'm going to check this out, the Rock of Cashel. How do you spell that? Uh, C-A-S-H-E-L. All right, perfect. I'm going to check that out. So, Stephen, 
I, I really appreciate this because, again, we're, we're coming to a, a Canadian audience. You know, these are students at the University of Waterloo. And Canada is, I, I don't want to say a relatively new country, but even when you're mentioning that, you know, it's, we're talking about 1884 and Canada became a country in 1867 with Confederation. So we're looking at a, a sport that is essentially as old as Canada. And what is hurling? <laughs> so if you're to do like a, a 101 guide for a Canadian audience that has never been exposed to this sport, what is it? How do you play it? What are the rules? Yeah, well, the organization began in 1884, but the sport itself is an ancient sport. So it goes mm. back for thousands of years and it goes back so far, I suppose, in time that there's a few ancient warriors, a few ancient heroes called, uh, you know, Nafina and these these warriors that uh, were fierce and that had a reputation of being the heroes in their society to some degree. And Cúchulainn is one such warrior. And Cúchulainn, I suppose, is this ancient image of old Ireland where he was a long-haired warrior that was out with his hurley stick made from the ash tree and was able to hurl uh, on the fields of Ireland and play this game. And through time, the game progressed. The game, you know, developed somewhat. But, uh, you know, about 800 years ago, uh, Ireland was invaded by England and all of a sudden over maybe the, the intervening four or five hundred years, hurling died off a little. It just became less relevant as uh, the English influence in Ireland grew. So to, to go right back to like the 1500s and the 1600s, hurling was very popular among the Irish people. But gradually it began to disappear as uh you know, the English had more of an influence on Ireland and tried to kill off a lot of uh, the the native way of life. So in that, there, the language suffered, the sports and pastimes suffered, and all that was related to that just suffered to a huge degree uh, right up from the 1600s, the 1700s, right up to the mid-1800s. And there was a huge famine in Ireland about 18... 45 and that continued right up to 1849 and one year in particular was called Black 47 and the problem with that was that a lot of the Irish were dependent on potatoes and the crop failed which meant that the main source of food for people in Ireland was gone. Now at the same time a lot of grain and a lot of crops were leaving Ireland for England because a lot of landlords had come in and taken over the land and you know they were still exporting what they needed from Ireland but a lot of the native people uh, died as a result and you know well over two three million people went abroad some went to Australia some went to North America some went to South America to Europe even to England and they just got out of Ireland because they had no future there so a lot of the Irish did go to places like Canada at that time Fast forward 30 years from that great famine in 1845 up to 1849 or thereabouts, and Irish culture had, you know, been decimated. It had been destroyed to a huge degree, and English culture was becoming more prevalent. English culture was everywhere. The Irish language had died off. Irish people didn't 
you know, receive any education at all simply because if you spoke Irish, you were just kind of a second class citizen in a lot of ways. And Irish became the language of poverty. Irish sports were seen as, as you know, poverty stricken. And all of a sudden, the whole country and its Irishness uh, was suffering to a huge degree, mainly because I suppose you had uh, England and English people ruling to a large degree in Ireland. And I suppose a lot of people um, that were thinking the same way just felt that hurling had to be brought back, to be revived. And there was this Gaelic revival going on in Ireland. And, you know, that was happening in a, in a lot of areas. And sport was one of the areas that um, they saw as being something that was, you know, too good to die, something amazing, something wonderful. And in 1884, in Hayes' Hotel in Turles, which is a town here in County Tipperary, uh, some like-minded people met and agreed to try and put some structure on the game of hurling and Gaelic football, which is a, a, another kind of version of, shall we say, a mix between rugby and soccer. And that's part of the Gaelic Athletic Association. Rounders was another sport that was included. And a lot of athletic activities, all to just keep the Irishness alive, to keep this spirit of what ancient Ireland was like and, and try and you know instill this in a new generation before the sport was lost forever. And uh, this had a lot of effect, really. It started to to take off. Now, the problem up until then was if you go to another county, we'll say if you went to Cork or you went to Limerick or you went someplace else, the rules of the game had changed. So you might have 30, 40 people out in the middle of a field playing the game and going back over time, there was the rules were probably loose. But at the same time, the game evolved and the game stayed alive and, and the hurley stick was used, which was made from an ash tree and a ball was made from maybe bits of leather and things just wrapped together. So right up until 1884, things were unstructured, but an attempt was made to just grow the game and to organise the Irish people and to give the Irish people their um, their heartbeat in some ways, true sport. And uh, hurling was formed. And in 1887, the very first all-Ireland Hurling Championship took place. A lot of teams entered it and the final was between Tipperary and Galway. And this final was played up in uh, Burr in County Offaly and it was played out. Tipperary won by one goal and one point to no score for Galway. So this was a watershed moment really for the game in that all of a sudden, it could be organised, it could be worked on, it could be built up. And all this happened in 1887 was the first All-Ireland. The organisation called the GAA, the Gaelic Athletic Association, was formed in 1884. So it took three years for that first All-Ireland. And every year since then, Christopher, an All-Ireland has been played. This is fantastic. And Stephen, I'm listening to you speak here and I can, f I can literally feel the passion for sport not just hurling but for sport coming across the atlantic so fyi folks <laughs> i'm i'm in north america i'm in canada i'm in what and, and, and you know steven's in ireland so what does and uh, what does sport mean to the irish people to ireland what, do, what, what does that mean sport not just hurling but as you mentioned gaelic football like what does it mean to 
to kids growing up to adults to Irish culture? What is sport? I guess it's a spark, you know, it's it's that feeling that uh, there's something amazing, there's something alive, really, and you're living in that moment. And like in Ireland, really, just to, to look at it today, you've got loads of sports played. You've got, you know, you have soccer, you have rugby. Uh, you can go to places in Dublin where they play American football. Basketball courts are in loads of schools across Ireland. But the big games, the huge games here that really are felt deep in the heart and in the soul are Gaelic games, I think, in Ireland, right across Ireland. And the Gaelic games are hurling and Gaelic football. Why, you may say, it goes back to that background, that history, that tradition that was there right up until uh, the GAA was formed in 1884. So it's, it's, it's in our DNA to a huge degree. And after that, it just started being played on year on year, all the way through. And when it was being played all the way through, the game evolved, the game changed right up to the present time. And if you look at 2019, Tipperary won the All-Ireland final in 2019. They beat Kilkenny in the All-Ireland final in front of 82,000 people mm. at Crow Park Stadium in Dublin. So like the, the power and passion, I suppose, is felt that day in particular, which is All-Ireland final day, which is when the two best teams in Ireland meet to the side who wins the All-Ireland. And in senior hurling, which is adult hurling, uh, Tipperary have a fine record in it. So too do Kilkenny, Cork, Limerick, Washford. These counties have just been popping up over time. And Tipperary are one of the big three, as they're known, along with uh, Kilkenny and Cork that would have won numerous All-Irelands. And that day... All-Ireland Hurling Final Day is just an incredible day for Irish people right around the world, not just in Ireland. You have 82,000 at the game. Mm. You'll probably have another 20,000, 30,000 walking around Dublin asking for tickets and trying to buy tickets in the pubs and in the shops beforehand and anywhere they can get their hands on them. And right around the world, people tune in to find out who wins the All-Ireland and follow the game, be they in, you know, Canada, be they in America, Mm. Australia, all across the world. It's a huge day for Irish people. And there's something really deep that just runs to the very core, I think, of being Irish. For a lot of people that that love any type of sport, you feel that. And why is it so special, you may say? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, what, what's yeah. That? yeah. The thing is, you're rooted to where you're from. Oh, okay. So if you're from Tipperary, you play with Tipperary. And this has been going on through time. Now, even though there's 82,000 going to an All-Ireland hurling final, believe it or not, the game is still amateur. The players, um, a few years ago, there was a lot of debate whether it should turn pro, whether they should be paid um, for playing the game. Because if you take it All-Ireland final day, you've got the ticket sellers getting paid, you've got the media getting paid, you've got um, the people selling burgers getting paid so they're all getting paid but the players don't and that I suppose has just been the tradition and the way it evolved so why are they doing it why do they train four or five nights a week sometimes to get in top class physical condition for no monetary gain and I think the reason is the prestige the game is held in within Ireland and around the world the prestige that Irish people feel you're a hurler it's a there's a huge kind of um 
you know, emotional strength in that or, or just a great credit is almost placed on you. The hurler almost takes on a, a spiritual place in the minds of a lot of people and, and in society. So I think it's a huge thing, really, that 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 comes from within and you have to be from the area to play there. So someone from Kilkenny grows up all the way up along and there's teams at every age group. So you're talking under 14, 15, mm-hmm. 16, minor is under 18 and then it goes to under 20 and then senior. So all the way up along, you can only play for that team and that place that you're from. So really when you put on that jersey and in Tipperary's case, it's a blue and gold jersey, um, a blue jersey with a gold hoop around the middle, you're playing for your place, you're playing for you know, your background, you're playing for your heritage, you're playing for all those things that you hold dear, your family, you know, your friends, everything around you, it is, it is yours. So you get to represent all those people. And that is absolutely massive. And it's the same for the female version of the sport, which is called Kamogi. There you go. How do you spell Kamogi? So Camogie is C-A-M-O-G-I-E, and it's a it's an Irish word. Okay. Um, so it is effectively it's it's women's hurling, and uh, like that's taken just as seriously as well. And it is growing. It's not as uh, uh, as massive in a way that the men's game is, in that the men's game will draw eighty two thousand to an All Ireland, but you could have up to thirty thirty five thousand going to the All Ireland. Camogie final as well, which is the women's sports version. So, uh, so there's a there's a huge background and a huge heritage there. And again, the sports have just grown up over time. And I think you will see Camogie even evolve that bit more over the coming years, as there's a lot of uh, a lot of a drive now to publicise it more, to actually um, show what heroes these people are who are taking part in that as well. And I think all that is feeding into the mind of the youth and that is is growing. So the sport really is nationalistic. You know, mm. it is about, uh, it came from Ireland and it's it's that ancient background of being Irish and, and uh, like being oppressed, I suppose, as Ireland was colonised for so long, it, it probably takes on more significance in the psyche of Irish people. And... That's really, I think, where it comes from. So, so sports overall. I mean, I love all different types of sports. I play mm-hmm. soccer. Um, I, I play basketball if I'm on a basketball court, and uh, and I, I try a little bit of that. Like, but uh, but really, I think hurling is the huge game, and it has the heart of the Irish people. Yeah, I, I really need to go and play hurling. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I need to learn this sport. And an interesting piece that you mentioned here. It's, you know, hurling, I don't want to say born out of, but this resurgence of hurling, particularly in, as you mentioned, in the 1800s, after Black 1847, again, the famine between 1845 and 1849, with this English colonization or the attempts of English colonization in Ireland. So what is the relationship or is there a relationship between hurling in Ireland in hurling in England. Is, is there hurling in England as well? Do people, do English hurl? 
Well, the origins of the game belong within Ireland. So it, it started here, I suppose, and it just evolved over time. And a lot of people will tell you that hockey evolved from hurling, that mm. ice hockey has uh, a lot of its background due to Irish people going to Canada and they couldn't play hurling on grass, so they played it on ice. And Interesting. It hey, to ice makes hockey. sense. There's ice, there's ice everywhere here. <laughs> yeah. And, like, so you do have... You do have, I, I suppose, that a country that a game comes from. You know, you have soccer in England, you have rugby there as well, roughly around Wales. And in Ireland, we have hurling and Gaelic football as well, which is played with a round ball, like a soccer ball that you can hold with your hands, that you can kick out of your hands as well. But hurling would have originated in Ireland. And as it grew over time, all these Irish people went abroad to other countries. So you had people going to England and they elected to set up hurling teams over in countries abroad. So you have teams now currently, it's grown all around the world. So you have teams in Australia, you have teams in England, France, Scandinavia, Canada, um, America, right through to, you can go to Argentina and all these places around the world. And there is GAA teams. Now, I think with a lot of it, what you have there is it's probably more vibrant here, but in those places, it serves as a community hub and it draws people in. Like I spent a summer years ago in New York and when I was in New York, uh, two or three of us just went for the summer from Ireland. And again, where do we gravitate? We gravitated towards the hurling club. Someone knew someone who lived mm. in New York, who said, will you guys play hurling with us for the summer? So we ended up playing hurling for that summer uh, for Galway in New York City. And when we were playing for Galway, their teams were called after the counties here in Ireland. So uh, it was wow. kind of Galway people in New York in charge of the Galway team and so forth. And we went over there to New York and just played some matches. And then I suppose you go back to maybe Irish restaurants or Irish pubs afterwards and you meet like-minded people and that helps to keep the culture alive. Now, for someone like me, it was really interesting to go for the summer and just experience that and meet Irish people who are first generation, second generation, and some whose grandparents went to New York and they just didn't want to lose touch with Ireland and found the GAA club a really good way of staying in touch with your roots, with your heritage. And that is something that is worldwide, I think, for Irish people. They flock to GAA clubs, men and women, and they can play with these teams. And, you know, a lot of these clubs, as they become stronger in places, and once it's not people who come for two months and go home, people who live there and build their life there, their kids get involved. Then you have enough to have underage teams. You've got, you know, right up to under 14, 15, 16, right up to adult level. And you get all these teams then built in around that culture. And like there's a lot going on, really, because you're talking about the culture. You're talking about meeting people from a similar background to yourself that helps maybe keep you grounded or keep you rooted to some degree. And also at the same time, it's a brilliant game. The game mm. itself is the fastest field game in the world. So it draws people in from all around the world that just love the speed of it, love the pace of it, love the skill level of those involved. And all that really just, I mean, it's its a brilliant mixture. So how do you play? <laughs> and and I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about the speed. I've, I've seen the videos 
and I'm I'm trying to digest it. And the, the beauty of the internet is that we can learn and we can figure things out. But you know, for typically for most of us, you know, in, in this class history 205, we've never been exposed to the sport. We're listening, and I, I have a feeling that most students, if not all students, right now are either on their phones or on their computers, googling, youtubing, you know, hurling clips, and seeing the speed of the game, how fantastically fast it is, and where do we begin in this 101? So we have a field, we have people, but what is this 101 guide to hurling? What is it? How do you play it? Okay, so the game now, we'll just focus on that, and I'll tell you maybe in a minute how it has evolved over time to get to where it is now. Perfect. Currently, you will have 15 on a team, and they will take on another team who will have 15 players as well. The goalposts then, they're kind of like what you have in rugby where you have, um, you know, you have maybe a lower uh, soccer style rectangle and then you've got two uprights coming up from either side. And if you hit it in low and you get it in to where the goalie is standing past the goalkeeper, you get a goal and that's worth three points. You hit it over the crossbar just overhead the goalie, that's worth one point, and that's uh, called a pint. So, again, you can have scores now, three goals and 20 pints to one goal and 15 pints. And the game is so fast at the moment. There's a referee in the middle. The referee throws in the ball, and away you go. So you can use the hurley in many ways. You can hit the ball along the ground as the ball is coming towards you on the ground. You can just pull on the ball, it's called. Hit it, that can go anything 30, 40, 50 yards further wow. even. You can hit it in the air as well. You can go up and catch the ball and you can run with the ball, but you have to put it on your hurley or hit it after four steps. So you're allowed to take four steps and then you have to release the ball, be it a hand pass, which is throw it up and then connect again with your hand to hit it away or to throw up the ball and swing your hurley stick and drive it down the field. And you're 15 taken on 15, so you have backs and forwards. Uh, you have defenders marking the forwards and the same at the other end of the field. And then you have other players in the middle of the field, and you also have a goalie on each team. So the game has evolved really in, in that respect. Um, currently, you'll have 15 playing 15, and they battle it out. You can hit with your shoulder. You can uh, rise the ball as well, which is when the ball is rolling along the ground, you can use your hurley stick to rise the ball and get it into your hand and then hit it out of your hand, which means you can hit it that bit further. Uh, the skill level has just been off the charts, really, the last 10 years in particular. Now, there's many reasons for that. One is that the players are doing professional style training in a lot of instances. Uh, they're training five, six nights a week. They're going to the gym. They have a psychologist. They have, you know, um, strength and conditioning coaches. They have speed coaches. They have all these things in the background. And they're, and they're all amateurs. They're all amateurs. All amateurs. Still. They still have yeah. a full-time job. <laughs> and then they're doing this all in the evening. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's fascinating. Wow. Now, what you're finding is the last, I would say, the last decade, uh, some players are getting sponsorship deals, be it with, you know, um, soft drinks companies or uh, car companies, and they are starting to just build their profile. Mm. So in that way, as amateur as it is, 
they're still getting some sort of an income from it. And like that's really the very top players of the sport. The rest are simply doing it because they love their club, they love their county, and it has that prestige within Ireland. So you have the counties, you have 32 counties in Ireland, uh, 26 in the Republic of Ireland, six in Northern Ireland, which belongs to the UK. But all those teams compete in the All-Ireland Championships. So you have 32 teams in football and in hurling, you have a certain amount of teams at the top level and then you have teams below that at different grades. So that's within the county. But if you just focus on Tipperary for a second, which is where I am here, you within Tipperary, you have loads of different clubs. So we have 50, 60 clubs, which are made up again of geographical areas. So again, you're representing your geographical area all the time. Where you're from, that's who you are. That's your team. Your team has your own identity. It's built up over, you know, 100, 150 years. Uh, you will have club teams that you will say, you know, they're, oh, they're tough to play against. They're always really hard and sticky teams to mark. Then you have probably town teams that are seen as really slick and move the ball quickly and they have a different character to their team. And that's even within the counties. So when you represent your county, you're taking the best players from all these clubs and they become the county team that that fights out for the All-Ireland title. So you have a lot of, of layers within the game and the game itself then, the last 10 years, as I said, the skill level is just off the charts because players are focused so much on improving and getting the very best out of themselves. Like, for example, Washford are a team that did really well this year. They have a player called Desi Hutchinson who was playing professional soccer over in the UK with Brighton, Hove and Albion with an English soccer team. He was released from that, came back. And now he is a big player for Washford and, you know, has all his skills that he's built up uh, from other sports, from soccer, uh, brought it back. And now he's part of the Watford team because he's living in Ireland. He's back home in Ireland and is loving his hurling as well. So like whatever your day job is, you can become a hurler and it's a huge game. And again, it's, it's similar to soccer, American football. You play up until roughly the age of 30. You will have some brilliant players that will keep going to 35, up to 40 in some cases. You know, you'll have your Tom Brady or you'll have your <laughs> your, your superstar player there that will be able to keep going that bit longer than all the rest. So the likes of Seamus Callanan now in Tipperary is one of those players. Brendan Maher. These names are, you know, they're iconic, really. They mean so much to the people of Tipperary and of Ireland. And they're household names here because everything here is focused on it. The media is focused on it. Oh. The whole lot that happens in Ireland is focused on it. And what is amazing is that there are so many people worldwide who don't know anything about the game. I find that absolutely yeah. <laughs> astounding. You know, I really do, because I would have grown up, um, you know, watching World Cup soccer and be it Diego Maradona or some br brilliant Brazilian teams or, you know, a good Irish soccer team back in the day as well. I'd follow rugby. Uh, come the time of the Super Bowl, we'd watch the Super Bowl. We'd know about teams in other countries that are doing well at different times, you know, and Canada and ice hockey. Like, you just know all these different sports. And for me, hurling is just, I mean, it's the, it's the champagne sport. It is the sport. It is 
the greatest sport. It's so fast, it's so swift, and yet so many people in the world don't know anything about it. Now, I think that is changing because Ireland is probably becoming more global, where mm. we were, you know, probably held into a certain way of thinking. Uh, Ireland just got independence in, in you know, the 1920s. So you're really looking at modern Ireland, which has just really expanded the last 20, 30 years. And the game of hurling has started to grow as as I suppose it becomes a global village, really. You know, you were saying you were in Dublin and saw this game and heard about it, and that was your introduction to yeah, it. Yeah. So I think it's starting to grow and it's starting to take off. And it does have the potential to be absolutely massive worldwide because of the skill level, because of the the effort needed involved in it. Now, the one thing is you do need hours and hours and hours of practice to be able <laughs> to rise the ball and hit it out of your hand and do all those things. But again, it is hand-to-eye coordination. So it's the same skills that you need. And, and what you find is a lot of players that are good at soccer are good at hurling and fo- Gaelic football. Oh, a lot of players that are good at rugby are good at hurling and Gaelic football and vice versa. Like, I mean, Shane Lowry, a, a world... A uh, famous golfer, like his uncle would have been a famous player in Gaelic games back in the 1980s. You know, his father would have played with Offaly back in the 1980s. So there's a lot of connections between sports and uh, a lot of players that have skill in one sport will have it in this as well. And I think what you mentioned there about the growth of this game and, and folks, and you're sitting from a, a very... I think you're sitting in a very crucial space to understand the growth of sport and how massive sport is globally. And as you mentioned, how come folks don't know about hurling? And to your point, particularly in in Canada, where ice hockey is not our national sport, but you know, from outside looking in, ice hockey is our national sport. And something you mentioned earlier that ice hockey came from hurling. And we never even have this conversation about hurling. Yes, as you mentioned, in terms of the Irish diaspora in North America, there's spaces that folks are playing the game. But on a larger scale, if I'm turning on, so in, in Canada, we have TSN and what well, would be the Canadian version of ESPN. We turn that on. We're not seeing you know, hurling highlights. We're, we're not seeing this impact of this game, which has had a massive impact on one of the, if not the largest, or most noticeable sport in Canada, ice hockey. And so you're you're really hitting on some interesting pieces here that yes, you know, Ireland really just coming through as a, a independent nation state in 1920s moving forward, but the impact it has had on a place like Canada with ice hockey. And I, I think that's fascinating how you're pulling these pieces together. And one of the things I've been sitting here and listening to you speak, and again, I, I can feel the passion that you have for this sport. Mm. Where do you think it's going to go next? Yeah, I think it's. I think it will become global in the next few years. I, uh, I, it's really interesting what you said there because, like, I suppose the media companies have a lot of say in it. So if something is pay per view or something like that, it doesn't really get out into the the open public. And I, I think all that is just something that's really going to become clearer as the years go by. I mean, if you were to look at how popular um 
soccer as a sport was in Ireland. It was way more popular 20, 30 years ago because it was on television. People talked about it on the radio and now it's, you know, behind a paywall. So the amount of people that can watch it has reduced. It doesn't have the impact on young people's minds. And as a result, it probably won't be as popular in 20 years as it is currently or as it was 20 years previously. Um, with us in Ireland, hurling has just become more and more popular. I suppose it's it's on TV in Ireland. It's on the airwaves in Ireland. Every area, every parish uh, has got a team and they play their neighbours and this goes on to the county championships. Then you have the inter-county championships, which is like tip against Cork and tip against Kilkenny. And you've got these rivalries that build up over time. So there is so much going on there that you have all the different counties involved. You have all this um, select history going back through time. And yet other people, that is so hard to grasp when you haven't really got uh, the background of it for years and years to build up that background. So I think sport is evolving all the time. And there's definitely bits from other sports that are influenced like for that that influence other games like if you were to take hurling for example this year we have um, a new introduction it's a winter championship due to covid so usually what's played out in summer in front of 40,000 50,000 and the all ireland final with 82,000 this year all of that has been behind closed doors now there is sponsorship deals there for the teams with jerseys and teams have other team sponsors and they all get their promotions their own way through that but uh you've it all played out behind closed doors this year so it's a very different championship this year than other years and i wonder if the the impact of it if that was the case for a few years what the knock-on effect is so i think really what we're talking about christopher is where we are right now because in 10 years time a sport can go anywhere like hurling could go global uh, a well-known sport that's played in so many places can drop off in popularity i know growing up in ireland uh snooker was absolutely huge mm. you know i think willie Thorne was a famous canadian snooker player and mm. it was massive it was on the the television in ireland and uh, like so many people had pool tables and snooker tables and then it went behind a paywall Mm. And if you were to talk to any 17, 18 year old now, I don't think they'd know any snooker player worldwide, whereas 20 years ago, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and and I think a sport can drop. So for me, snooker has dropped off the radar in terms of popularity and has disappeared. And I think really something like hurling, if that was to go mainstream for a little while, I mean, boom, the thing would just take off and become absolutely massive worldwide so it does need that exposure how does it get the exposure is the big question um a lot of the the ga clubs around the world are usually smaller organizations and they're probably um you know they're they're struggling really to 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 get 200 to 1000 people at their matches maybe in certain areas now you do have the north american championships in gaa that attracts a lot of irish people from all across um, the continent to go to these matches but generally in Ireland is where you get the crowds and you do get a lot of tourists that come here in the summer just to take in the Munster Championship games the Munster Championship is is a really hard-fought traditional 
championship with Tip and Cork and Limerick and going back to the 40s and 50s. They all had these hurling icons. Christy Ring was the name from Cork. Mick Mackey from Limerick. Uh, Jimmy Doyle from Tipperary. And these guys were, you know, they were lords of the game. They were gods of the game. And what was really interesting was uh, when I was writing my book, Game of My Life, uh, on hurling, one current day coach who was very well known, Eamon O'Shea, he made the point that um, he he only got to see Jimmy Doyle play in maybe maybe three, four times over five years. But yet he always felt he could see Jimmy Doyle because it was on the radio when Tipper played. He was mm. able to imagine who Jimmy Doyle was and Jimmy Doyle lit up their lives as a result. And these people took on larger than life characteristics. And I think that that is something in sport that it can just whet the appetite, the imagination as much as anything else. And when it does that, you know, it's got a whole new generation and the game goes off in a new direction. So that generation of players in tip were absolutely huge back in the sixties. Uh, we had a lull then for maybe 10, 15 years, couldn't win a match and then started to come back again. And, the last decade, we won three All-Irelands, which was a huge haul for Tipperary. They won in 2019. This year, it's down to the final stages now again. Tipper knocked out this year by Galway. But the game is huge. It's in a really good state. And I think there's a lot of effort being made now by the GAA um, as an organization. And their headquarters is in Crow Park to promote the game, to try and grow the game internationally, to try and grow the game globally and to see what avenues they can take by doing maybe, you know, a deal with a, a Canadian TV station right. to show matches during the championship. And if you can strike these deals, I think that's that creates the interest and that the market goes from there. I, I just took a note right here. Get Stephen in contact with the University of Waterloo's athletic department to get a demonstration of hurling. Because, I mean, this is a space, like you're saying, expose folks to this game. Expose them to the, the values of the game, the history of the game, the intensity of the game, and grow. And, I mean, just from myself, from an, a cursory space of, of seeing this sport and even seeing that massive stadium, as you mentioned, 82,000, there's only a handful, maybe one or two stadiums in Canada that can hold 82,000 people, that this is a massive sport. And I'm, I'm, I really appreciate you coming here and, and letting us know about this. And so one thing I would like to ask you as we, we get to the tail end, tell us a little bit about your, your book. Game of My Life. What's this book about? So Tipperary Game of My Life is um, is is a book really that I just tried to tell the story of Tipperary hurling over the last 70 years. And what better way to do that than through the people involved in it? So um, so it's published through Hero Books here in Ireland. And I sat down and, and made out a list of, of well-known players and because I work in radio I know some of them well and I just tried to piece together the history of Tipperary Hurling. So I started off with players from the 1950s, players from the 1960s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, right through to the current generation in 2020. So I interviewed different people about one game that stood out in their life and 
It starts off with Jimmy Finn from Boris Ailey, who is 90 years old. And Jimmy talks about the 1950 All-Ireland final where Tipperary played Kilkenny in the All-Ireland final. And he was just a, a young player at that time, a teenager coming onto the team, had showed promise and they threw him in in the All-Ireland final. He had done well in practice matches and they said he's ready and they put him on the field to play. He, he marked Kilkenny's great player, Jim Langton of that time. Uh, Jimmy had a sterling career then, became one of the, the big names in Tipperary. The following year, he captained the team to the All-Ireland and had a, a brilliant career up until uh, the late 50s. And then in the late 50s, he got hit with a ball one day and mm. the ball hit him in the eye and he Ooh. lost the sight in his eye and it affected him for the rest of his life. Excellent. And he ended up going to America because that time, if you won in the Hurling Championships, you got all these trips as well to America. So there was all these add-ons really for being a hurler. And he went to one of the best surgeons in the world back in uh, in the 50s and they told him there was nothing he could do but he, mm. he wasn't bitter about it so I was interviewing him and like he's 90 now and his, uh, his abiding thing I suppose is the friendships he made through hurling the people that he met that he hurled against the people that went to the matches the people that he knew at that time and how all those friendships followed him through the years and you know how he's still maybe on the phone to some of them that are still with us today and that hurling was just at the core of friendship for him. You you fast forward to the 60s and 70s. It's, I suppose, about the decade for these people, where they were in their life. I interviewed Babs Keating, who is a very famous player as well and a great character in Tipperary hurling, always outspoken. And Babs went on to become the Tipperary manager in the late 80s and lead him out of the famine period uh, mm -hmm. when Tip hadn't won for 16 years. So it was called The Famine Is Over, was a very famous speech that was made and, and is a kind of a, a keystone for the modern Tipperary hurling story. But Babs was uh, playing back in the early 70s and he tells his point of view. But for him, it was about the decade what he was doing at that time in his life, you know, from his 20s to his 30s and, you know, where he was going, how he was building a career, how his life was heading off in a certain direction. And you go through then to the, the players from the 1980s and how they revered Babs, who became their manager. And Babs took over Tipperary when they were at a really low ebb and hadn't won a game for a long time. Tip went 10 years without winning a match and there was no real preparation of uh, young teams in Tipperary, of young players. That was all kind of forgotten because Tip had so much success mm. in the 1960s and it just fell off a cliff, the amount of success. And it arrived back in 1987 when Babs Keating led Tipperary back to a Munster final. They won the Munster final, went on a couple of years later and won the All-Ireland and Tip were back again. And it follows through those players' time in hurling. And they'd speak about the likes of Babs and how what they went through and, uh, you know, how training had changed. And mm -hmm. and it goes right through to the current 
crop who are playing at the moment in uh, 1920. And those guys now, they're training, you know, seven days a week. They have a psychologist. They have S&C coaches. Everything is taught of. They have GPS when they're playing matches on their back. So it's all changed. The technology has changed through time. Uh, The way people got to matches has changed. For example, back in the 50s and the 60s, they were cycling to training. Mm -hmm. You know, you fast forward to now they're like they're going by car they're getting buses to games the whole thing has just changed the hurley stick has completely changed the hurley stick was made from ash some of the earlier players Theo english another of uh, the 90 brigade spoke of the 1958 all ireland he made his own hurleys back then so he had to get an ash tree and the best place for ash was by a river uh wait sorry hold on they made their own hurley yeah, they made their own <laughs> stick. So it's made, made from, their... from ash. And I'd like mm. when I interviewed him, it just got really interesting because it took right. on a whole new angle that he made his own hurleys. And, and like again, he was probably skilled um, and would have been a good carpenter, but he mm. was able to make hurleys. So he started selling the hurleys to his teammates. And then all of a sudden, he got this reputation as a great hurley maker. And the hurley maker traditionally is is one of these people that is in touch with the style is in touch with the game of hurling. So when you get your hurley, it's kind of, it almost becomes a part of you. It becomes an extension of you. And you play with this piece of ash that has a huge heritage and has a huge history within the game. And for those players back in the 50s and 60s, that meant an awful lot. So like his point, he told me that when they got an ash tree, he said five or six of them would go and they'd get a load of ash trees. They'd get a horse and cart. They'd put it up in the back. They'd take it back then and they'd work on it in a workshop. And he'd make as many hurleys as he could out of that. You have to dry the ash, uh, you know, season it. You have all these different things to do with it, to turn it in, to shape it like a hurley stick, which can be, you know, 35 inches, 36 inch, 38 inch, depending on how tall you are. So someone six foot might use a 36 inch Harley. If you're five foot 10, you might use a 34 inch Harley. It came up to a certain point in your hip. And so the Harley evolved anyway, as time went on, all of a sudden you had grips on it. Something like the way you'd see a tennis racket. I suppose if you ever look at the ones that Bjorn Borg or, (laughs) you know, Stefan Edberg used back in the day. Uh, back in John McEnroe's type tennis racket compared that to the modern day one. So the Hurley has evolved through time. And and Tio's point was interesting. He said like that, uh, you know, nowadays I wonder, do they even know where the ash comes from in their Hurley stick? And now a a lot of the ash now is imported because there was a disease here called ash dieback. And Mm. a lot of the ash trees became infected with this disease. And a lot of the Hurleys that players use now are imported, the, the ash is imported from, you know, from Wales or from Poland mm. or other countries uh, into Ireland to make sticks with. And and even now one company in Ireland in 2020 has started making hurleys from bamboo. And they wow. believe that this is where the future of the hurley stick will lie. Um, there's also other companies that make kind of a, uh, what's often termed a plastic hurley, but it's made from other materials. It's it's not quite plastic, and it's it's uh, made from a lot of different materials. 
to get the balance right and to get everything right. And that's starting to catch on with with some younger players now. But again, the traditional diehard hurler and even a lot today will insist on an ash tree, an ash plant, an ash stick, where they got it from and they'll know all about it. And, And I thought what was really interesting was these parallels even that go through time. On the current Tipperary team, uh, in in game in my life, one of the players told me that uh, Ronan Mayer, one of the tip hurlers, makes hurlies now, and he's making them for a lot of the tip team. So there's similarities in 2020 with what was there in 1958. And I just tried to trace the history of hurling as time evolved as well, because, you know, as you know, Christopher, there's so much change in such a short space of time. Right. The last while, be it from mobile phones to mm-hmm. computers to the technology has changed and hurling has evolved in a huge way. The current day hurling stick is completely different from what was used in 1950. The ball is completely different. The ball is consistent now. It's, you know, half of it is packaged in, I don't know, Pakistan or somewhere around the world and imported now. Whereas back then it was made from a cow's hide and it was made from leather and stuffed with different things. So it, there's an awful lot of things that change and then others that stay the exact same. And and I just wanted to tell that story through the players in the book. So I have 35 players, hurlers uh, in, in the book and they range in age from 90 right through to the late 20s. And just I found it fascinating the way they looked at the world. Some of them talk about the game. Some of them talk about the decade. And some of them talk about their entire life and how hurling shaped how they think about the world. This is a fascinating book. So folks, if you're in Canada, we can get that off of Amazon.ca. You can check it out. Tipperary Game of My Life. It just came out October 20th, 2020. I'm staring at it right now. It's fantastic. So Stephen, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, I'm available and anyone that would like to get in touch with me or, you know, they can send me an email, stephen at tipfm.com. Tip FM is the local radio station, my radio station here. uh, And I'm the sports editor there and I do commentary there on the matches. So uh, I'll let you know when I'm doing commentary again, Christopher, and you can post a link if you want. And anyone who wants to email me can email me. Anyone that would like a chat really Oh, feel free to. I've really enjoyed this chat with you, Christopher. Stephen, this has been fantastic. I have a page full of notes. <laughs> uh, I just take it notes. Every time you said something, I was like, oh, man, how are we going to expand this? How are we going to build? I'm even thinking how we build an entire module off of just this one conversation. It's been fantastic. Stephen, I really appreciate this. And I know for a fact that the students in this class are going to appreciate it. I'm actually going to share this with folks across the university because the passion and influence that you brought here not just about hurling but about Ireland Irish people Irish culture has been fantastic and it's one of those stories and as we know in Canada there's very there's a lot of Irish folks in Canada and these are some of the stories that we really want to get across that not a lot of folks know about we know the Irish are here, but we don't tie this to sport. And that's one of the things we're doing in this class is seeing, okay, we're talking about the history of sport, but sport is culture. Sport is history. Sport is people. And in just this one little, you know, this podcast, you you touched on everything. So, Stephen, thank you very much. Oh, that's fabulous. That's so nice to hear. Thanks, Christopher. And just to say to you, when, when the game 
was became organized back in 1884 like the 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 read the goal i suppose was to keep that irish gaelic tradition alive and keep the language alive now the interesting thing is back then so many people in ireland spoke irish irish was our first language you know and it just it it died to a certain degree and the language never came back so by 1884, a lot of people had realized either you speak English or it's game over for us um, in terms of the English were ruling Ireland. And like they succeeded, I suppose, in in putting the language into the Irish people to the point where a lot of expressions in Irish have completely changed. You know, the Irish probably have a way of talking that uh, other English people don't. And that's probably because the way we think has evolved from the way the Irish language was spoken before. Now, the current Irish language, it hasn't really grasped on. I would say maybe 20% of the population are able to speak fluent Irish, less even. And you would say English is the spoken language. But hurling and Gaelic football were the big success stories. And they have that, that, um, you know, that feeling that goes through time with with in relation to the country and where we came from and who we are and all that. And and it's a lot of what the Irish identity is about. And I think the fact that they're so strong today is brilliant to keep that Irish culture and that Irish spirit alive. Fantastic. Stephen, again, thank you on behalf of everyone at the University of Waterloo, on behalf of everyone in Canada. I want to say thank you very much and definitely looking forward to when you are broadcasting those next games. And I know you're in the middle of championships right now. Make sure you send them my way and I'm going to share them out. So again, Stephen, thank you very much for this. Appreciate it. Brilliant. And listen, I'm well up to do anything like this again. And if there is students want to get in touch, Christopher, that's no problem at all. I'd be well up for that. I know for sure there's going to be students. I'm hoping to also administration will be getting a hold of you because I think you're a type of voice that needs to be broadcast much broader than just one course. So thank you, Stephen. I appreciate it. Uh, it's lovely to hear.